0: She grinned as the car slowed, then stopped. She squinted to see the man inside, realizing it wasn't the distance or darkness that was making him blurry, but the case of beer she'd already had today. She asked him if she could have a ride to the next rest stop. He was on a long trip and welcomed the company. Her memory of the events that followed were hazy. She remembered getting him to pull off a quiet exit. He stopped the car. She took off her clothes. Didn't he want her? She grabbed her gun. He tried to escape. She shot once, twice, three times. Was he dead yet? The next bullet took off the top of his head. She shot again. He collapsed. She took what she could, including the wedding ring on his left hand. She got into the driver's seat, still naked, and drove off. I'm Laura, I'm here with my best friend Marina, and this is Grimm.
1: is a crazy bitch.
0: She sure is. Yep. That was not exaggerated. That's what happened. Well, to the best of our our knowledge and research. Right. So as a reminder, this is the second episode of a two-parter. So if you haven't yet listened to part one, do that first. We'll Mm -hmm. be here when you come back. We left off with the murder and initial investigation of Richard Mallory. And you, dear listeners, are privy to the fact that his killer was Eileen or Lee Warrenos. But Daytona area police had chased down their only lead right to a dead end. And as I told you at the end of the last episode, it would be two years before police would finally connect Lee to Richard's murder. But she was quite busy in that time.
1: So many lives lost.
0: Yes. Yeah. So let's get into it. I'm ready. So in part one, I also told you about how Lee met Ty at the Zodiac Bar in 1986. They really did hit it off immediately. In fact, the first weekend they met, Lee basically moved into the room Ty was temporarily staying in at her friend Cammie's house. Ty and Cammie had been close friends since Cammie had moved in next door two years earlier. Ty herself had come to Daytona the year before after leaving her family in Ohio. Her mom had died when she was only two, though she remained close to her father and stepmother. In Daytona, when Ty had trouble making ends meet and was eventually evicted, Cammy let her move in until she could get back on her feet. Aww. Cammy and her husband Dinky. <laughs> it is a nickname, but I forget I should have written his regular his real name, but it like wasn't much better. And I just it's it, I have to say it several times in this and it's just
1: His nickname's Dinky, but his real name's Dinkleton.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that good. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that one really that really tickled me. tickled you. <laughs> yep. Anyway, Cammy and Dinky knew Ty preferred the company of women and were completely fine with it. They weren't, however, thrilled with their new guest Lee. Mm. In addition to the fact that Lee didn't contribute in any way to the house—not financially, not doing any chores. Cammy thought something just wasn't quite right about Lee.
1: Yeah, I was thinking somebody like that has to be given off some sort definitely, of vibe.
0: Definitely. And then Dinky was only returning the blatant dislike that Lee showed him. Surprisingly, not for his name. Right. Um, but Ty assured Dinky that it wasn't anything personal. Lee just hated all men, despite her habit of picking them up for sex when she was out hitchhiking. Okay. Both Cammy and Dinky were relieved when the couple finally left just a month later. Ty and Lee moved from place to place around the area, finally landing in the Pierre Motel, the same place where Ty had just been hired as a maid. Kathy Beesman, the owner of the motel, liked Ty well enough, but kept a healthy distance from Lee. Lee had told her many stories from her life, like marrying Louis Fell, that was the uh, (laughs) Yakov president, and about how her grandparents had been abusive. Kathy observed that Lee was certainly in control of the relationship. This fact was made almost concerning with Lee's hobby of going out to the woods behind the motel and practicing her quick draw with the twenty-two caliber pistol she carried.
1: Casual? Yep.
0: And when Ty and Lee would inevitably run out of money, Kathy would sometimes float them a small loan that they would then pay back. But after a few too many of these loans, Kathy finally asked them to leave in spring 1987.
1: Yeah, that's never a good idea.
0: No, no. She was very generous, very kind to them, but I think they took it a little too far. Right. So with little money and nowhere else to go, they went back to Cammie and Dinkies. Their habits hadn't changed since they'd been away. And it, again, it seemed time for Ty and Lee to move on. So they did so in August of that year, loading their things and actually some of Cammie's, including her ID, very nice, into a borrowed car that Lee had.
1: Who'd you borrow it from? We don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: And um, and this is years before the end of the last episode. So we really don't know oh, who it is. Oh,
1: so Richard might not be the first victim? That
0: is my theory and many, many other people's theory. Mm, mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. Because where
0: else is she getting a car? She doesn't have friends and she doesn't have money. Right. After leaving their friend's house again, Ty and Lee lived as drifters, staying just weeks or even days at a time at a motel, then moving on. In one such stop, Lee encountered the manager of a nearby store, Paul, and the two struck up a conversation. When Paul told Lee he was also a writer, Lee was thrilled. Since she was a child, she had always told people she wanted to be famous and wanted to have a book written about her. (laughs) She, she did. Spoiler alert.
1: <laughs> I read it. Um, she meets Paul. She's like, hey, Paul, I'm a nobody from Daytona. Write a book about me. Yeah. I'll tell you some fun stories, which is actually basically what happened. Paul was on board
0: because Lee seemed basically interesting enough, had heard some stories uh, that she had told. So one night he went to their room to tie in Lee's room to get a feel for what he might be able to write about. I think he soon regretted that. Not as much as some of the other people she encountered regretted Mm. things, but as the night went on and they talked more, Lee just downed beer after beer, and she became less coherent and more aggressive.
1: She's like, book muggle me so great. Yeah, write about me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) By the end of the night, Lee had run out of beer and money. So Paul, by this time, had determined it was in his best interest not to write the book and actually never see her again also. well, oh, that's
1: good, because she probably would have
0: killed him. Uh-huh. So as I said, Lee did, in fact, have a book or two written about her, just not by Paul. <laughs> but Paul lived to tell the tale, he so you know did. what? <laughs> <laughs> He's winning out of this one. Yes. Lee and Ty eventually landed in another rented apartment in the Daytona area, which they moved into in August of 1987. They lasted until the following summer when they were evicted for making too much noise and making changes to the apartment without permission. <laughs> probably not. The, that's like probably the lightest of their crimes. Actually, right.
1: I wonder what changes they were making.
0: I think they like painted the walls and changed, like ripped the carpet out or something. So like semi rebels. Yeah, Rebels. Crazy. <laughs> they returned again to Kathy Beesman's Pierre Hotel or motel. You gotta say it. Hotel motel. Hotel Holiday Inn. Thank you, because that's all I could think. Every time I accidentally (laughs) wrote hotel instead of motel, that's all I thought. Uh, So Kathy knew them, of course, as Ty and Lee, but elsewhere, Lee was going by the name Cammie Green.
1: Oh, Mm -hmm. well, that's why she stole her ID.
0: Indeed. She had the driver's license to prove it. Did they look nothing alike? No. no. I don't understand what was happening in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) They were not checking IDs, (laughs) I don't think. (laughs) Now, as Ty and Lee continued to move around, Lee was still the primary breadwinner, if you could call it that. But in late summer of 1989, Ty finally landed a decent job in the laundry room at a swanky hotel called, this one really was a hotel, called the Casa Del Mar. At her new job, Ty worked with a woman named Sandy Russell, and the two became fast friends. So much so that they planned to have Thanksgiving dinner together, including Lee, of course. When the time came to sit for dinner, Lee wanted no part of it. She had been cold towards Sandy since she and Ty had gotten close, and Lee wouldn't eat with them, wouldn't even sit with them, saying she'd already had dinner. Just a week later, Lee had her encounter with Richard Mallory, the man who had unknowingly picked up her- his murderer on I 75.
1: Was Lee just like sitting in the corner chugging Michelob lights? Literally,
0: yeah. She was just wanted nothing to do with it. And she was the driver of that was that she was very jealous anytime Ty had a relationship with anyone but her. And she and Ty and Sandy were super close, so it really ate at her.
1: She was mentally well. She didn't have any skeletons no, in her not concept. at all. She didn't take it out on innocent men no. driving on the highway. I think in the last episode you mentioned, I think it was, was the opener actually, that Eileen basically confessed and they had seen it on TV. Mm-hmm. So did Ty not question that she saw it on TV and then they moved all their belongings in the dead mm-hmm. guy's car?
0: She definitely was aware and then just... She just put her head down and chose not to think about it.
1: She gave it the ostrich treatment. Exactly.
0: In fact, that's what the book said several times over. Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. A, I mean, it's a strategy. It's very accurate. It's a strategy. Yeah,
0: and i that's kind of, unfortunately, the theme throughout. And had she not done that, potentially could have saved a lot of lives. But she did end up playing a very important part in Eileen's arrest. Spoiler alert, but I think you could have figured that out <laughs> um, uh, later on. So it... She okay. did She did eventually contribute. She did something. Yeah. Too little, too late. Unfortunately. But have saved so many lives. Yeah. Let's talk about one of those lives. Okay. Around 2 o'clock on Saturday, May 19th, 1990, David Spears finished his beer and took out his wallet. He said goodbye to his coworkers, who he'd joined for a quick drink before making his weekly pilgrimage up to Orlando to spend the rest of the weekend with his daughter and ex-wife. Though Dee was indeed his ex-wife, as the two had divorced back in 1984, it seemed that those papers couldn't outweigh their previous 26 years together. They couldn't even really remember why they'd separated in the first place. David was a quality man, continuing to provide for Dee and Deanna, who was graduating from high school that year. As a celebration, and because the timing seemed perfect— David was planning to propose to, again to Dee that summer.
1: Oh, why are you giving me all this backstory? Know, you're making me sad.
0: I meant to put this quote in here um, from one of the uh, victim's families, but it was really, I really should go dig it up and put it in the episode notes because one of them said, if you're going to tell her story, meaning Eileen's, right. tell theirs. And it was really, it really stuck with me. And that's why I have details on each person. And I think Colby used to say this when, when she did it in, um, any of her episodes, really like the victims are the important people I know, in this. I know.
1: It's just, it, it further, it humanizes them, which Absolutely. is the absolute point. And it makes me so, it makes me so sad yeah. because you're just, that's, it's the point of us telling the stories.
0: Exactly. So I, and, and. Credit again to the book that I read, Lethal Intent by Susan Russell, because she gave so much detail about each of the people that are truly affected by this. So, yeah, it was really good.
1: I think I've also heard a ton of other podcasts, especially with serial killers. They're like, nobody can name the victims, but these people have become so infamous, Mm -hmm. and we should remember their names above all else. Mm -hmm. And when we get to the point of this making
0: it to the media, that was something that um, that Sue put in the book, and then the victims' families had said as well, is once it came out that it wasn't just their own loved one missing, it became a victim of Eileen's instead of David Spears or something, which just really gave me a perspective. I obviously have not had this experience of losing someone to a serial killer. Um, So I just thought that was a really, really good thing to think about. Yeah. All right. So during his lunch break at Universal Concrete the day before, David had called Dee to confirm that he would be arriving somewhere around three the next day. He was especially excited for this trip since his daughter's birthday was that week and he and Dee were going to go shopping for that present as well as her graduation present so he made sure to bring enough cash to cover both. On that bright, sunny, late spring day, David had his full attention on the road. Only another half hour or so from his destination, David spotted a woman walking along the shoulder, and as he approached, she flagged him down. In return for his good deed, David never made it to Orlando. No one but Lee and David know what happened on that fateful day. Lee's story was that he wanted to pay her for sex, and then he tried to rob her. So just like with Richard, she had to shoot him in self-defense.
1: So that's not at all what happened. No,
0: definitely not. And by all accounts, um, Richard was the only one. So the first murder that I talked about was the only one that I could argue was probably picking someone up for sex. The rest of these men were very likely just seeing someone who needed help and really genuinely wanted to offer to bring them where they needed to go, which makes it so much worse.
1: I'm glad that people don't hitchhike anymore and that that's no longer socially acceptable because that's so scary. It was bad times.
0: Yeah. David's car was found in an insane coincidence, actually, by his boss. So remember, he worked nearly three hours away, but his boss happened to be driving that same stretch of highway with his wife on their way back from vacation just a week later. Wow. Mm -hmm. And he knew, of course, that David was missing. And when he saw what looked like Dave's truck pulled off the side of the road, he called it in. It took another two weeks before David's body was discovered by someone out for a walk in the woods. Although the clearing was difficult to get to and off of a deserted dirt road, it was actually as the crow flies only a few hundred feet from the highway through a rough path of damaged trees and tire tracks, almost as if someone had kind of driven a car through there. Hmm. He was found completely naked with only a hat on, lying face up with legs and arms spread apart. And investigators, of course, swarmed in, finding some beer cans and a few other items discarded nearby.
1: Okay, it's stories like these, though, that if I'm ever walking and I see a trash bag, I'm like, what if there's a body or a head in there? I it's, think that
0: every time. Yeah, it's stories like this. Every time on the highway when I see it, too, I'm like, should I call that in? But what do you call? What do you call? Excuse me, um, I saw a bag of trash and it may be a body. <laughs> like, that seems more suspicious.
1: They're like, ma'am,
0: what drugs have you taken this <laughs> yeah, morning?
1: Exactly.
0: Exactly. But I do have the same thought. Yes. david's autopsy was held the following week although there wasn't much to look at in the hot florida weather david's body was a fraction of its size when he was alive
1: did anything eat it
0: no i don't well i guess i don't know i don't know that for sure um he had stood at six feet four inches tall so super big guy 195 pounds they brought in just four 40 40 pounds to be examined.
1: Something had to have eaten them, right? Maybe. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Cuz your bones must weigh That's a great question. At least that.
0: I wonder how much I wonder what percentage of your body weight your bones account for. I would think it's mostly muscle that weighs a lot.
1: I bet you that there's an answer to that on Google. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have to well have to close look at least a guesstimation. Yeah. Uh, bone <laughs> bone weight Moving on.
0: (laughs) So it was determined in the autopsy that there were six bullets in his torso. One or two of them had entered from his back. Like with Richard Mallory, they knew that David was missing. And since the corpse generally matched his description, they suspected it was him.
1: Nothing says self-defense like bullets entered through your back.
0: Exactly. And that is a theme that you'll see throughout Mm. this case.
1: Yeah, running away. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So on June 7th, they received confirmation that it was indeed David, thanks to dental records. On May 31st, Chuck Karsgadden was driving along the same stretch of I-75. He was nearly done with the first leg of his round-trip jaunt from Missouri to Tampa, back to Missouri, to pick up his fiance, Peggy, and bring her back to his mother's. Kind of definition of if he wanted to, he would. Right? <laughs> it's crazy. It's like, just fly. T- I know, right? plane. <laughs> His family and friends knew him as a kind, dependable man who loved to help others. He lit up a room. He, he, basically, that is the male version of lighting up a room, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. He was always going over to his mom's house to fix something or mow the lawn. He certainly wouldn't have thought twice about stopping to help a woman in distress on the side of the highway. It's clear that Lee used the element of surprise to overtake her victims. Chuck was young and fit. He was a part-time rodeo rider, which oh my is gosh. pretty cool. But no one could stand a chance against nine bullets. No. As was custom, after she killed him, Lee robbed him, took his truck, and as she had with David's truck, just left it on the side of the highway when she was done with it.
1: What a piece of shit to claim self-defense in these cases.
0: Exactly. There's a quote, um, once again, spoiler alert, but sorry, that was the Massachusetts coming out. <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, also, whenever I say that, I think of that commercial that's like bag alert, major bag alert. Do you know that one? No. Pausing. Okay, I found it. It's a Wendy's commercial. (laughs) I have to play it for you. I'm not going to play the whole thing. Just the one part I keep singing.
1: I've never heard that. Okay, well... I have and now you
0: have too. <laughs> so anyway, we have already established she will be arrested and there will also be a trial. And at the trial that was one of the points that the prosecution made was basically like you don't have self defense likely this many times in, you know, two years. It's it's just not likely.
1: I mean, even just the few that you've talked about thus far and mm-hmm. the circumstances mm-hmm. of those murders, I would say that it would be I'm um, very easy to strike down that defense in this situation. Yeah. yeah. Like six yeah. bullet wounds to the back does not sound like self-defense to me.
0: Does not self-defense me. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. So Chuck was found on June 6th, just a day before David's autopsy. Although it was just a week after he'd gone missing, the decomposition was still quite pronounced. He had been hastily covered with a green electric blanket and as with David the medical examiner observed a number of bullet wounds eight to be precise all appearing to come from a 22 and all ending up in his torso.
1: So many bullet wounds mm-hmm. I mean, and those are really small bullets though too. They
0: are but close up and
1: well yeah. and
0: yeah. Now it was also noted speaking of what it that it wasn't self defense. It was noted that all eight bullet wounds were close together and had although they had entered from the front them being close together was an indication that he hadn't been moving very much when he was shot. So a lot of her argument was, oh, he was coming towards me. He was going to attack me. Doesn't sound like it. No. Now, at this time, they still hadn't been able to identify the corpse as that of Chuck's. But six months later, they were able to confirm it was him by a wire in his jaw from a previous accident um, when he was on uh, doing rodeo. Oh,
1: wow. Mm-hmm. Was there like a serial number on it or they just figured most people don't have that?
0: I think the latter. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question, though. Surprisingly, that detail wasn't in the book. <laughs> <laughs> it was serial number four. <laughs> now, we kind of talked a little bit about this, but I should remind everyone now that, like we've said with previous cases, the similarities of the murders are very obvious to us because we're hearing it all back to back. And more importantly, we know the killer. But at the time, well, yes, the discovery of yet another dead man nude and lying in the woods certainly raised eyebrows... The men and their abandoned cars were discovered all by different departments. So investigators from the Citrus County Sheriff's Office had investigated David's murder. Bruce Munster of Marion County found Chuck's abandoned vehicle. And Tom Muck of Pasco County handled the discovery of his body. So there wasn't a lot of communication at that point between...
1: Sorry. No, finish.
0: Between officers?
1: (laughs) That's why I was like, no, please go. (laughs) Isn't that what happened basically in the Ted Bundy case? i think so he would he would kill a few people and then move states and they weren't discussing things interstate and he just got away with it so much longer exactly
0: and hashtag florida also for for this case i mean yeah yep so it was lee's third murder in as many weeks that made it a pattern and gave the different counties reasons to join forces on june 7th 65 year old peter sims was on a mission literally An extremely religious man, Peter took every opportunity to spread the good word, which meant that he brought a whole bunch of Bibles with him to hand out on his long trip. His wife, to whom he'd been married for 25 years, was on a work trip in Europe with one of their adult sons. He was planning to head north from his home in Jupiter, Florida to his mother's in New Jersey. So seriously, long trip. Mm -hmm. On the way back, he'd swing west and visit his other son in Arkansas. He left at 9 p.m. and was never seen again. When Peter didn't arrive as scheduled to his mother's, alarm bells were not actually raised immediately. She was elderly and she forgot things. Peter's wife, however, became very concerned when he didn't call on June 19th, so he left on June 7th, but it was June 19th that she was concerned because they had a scheduled call. She called their home again and again, and when she didn't hear from him, finally called relatives. She was alarmed to learn that no one had heard from him or seen him since the 7th. Oh, wow. She enlisted Peter's niece, Kathleen, to go talk to the police and report Peter as missing. On July 9th, although Peter's body hadn't been discovered yet, investigators from Citrus County and Pasco County did finally get together with representatives from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and compared notes. There were striking similarities. The men had died from bullet wounds, and specifically not just a couple, a significant number, and as we said, all from the 22 pistol, shot at close range. They had picked someone up on the highway while traveling alone, they were robbed, and the killer left no fingerprints, having wiped down the vehicle before then abandoning it miles away from where their nude bodies were left in the woods. Hmm. Based on the method of homicide and discarded items found at each crime scene, investigators suspected the killer or killers were female. Interesting. Yes, it is. Grim retellings of (laughs) interesting murders and mysteries. (laughs) However, while these consistencies were compelling, they weren't enough to identify who did it. Ironically, it was Lee's actions on Independence Day that led the investigators one step closer to her capture. On that day, Ty had to work at the hotel, and then she and Lee planned to go out to celebrate. Once Ty had finished her shift, Lee picked her up in another friend's car, And if you can't see my, can't get it from my voice, I am putting those in air quotes. (laughs) Sometimes I forget we're on a podcast. I'm not actually just telling you a story in
1: in your house. (laughs) I should have, I should have spelled that out for our (laughs) listeners.
0: So the two drove around with no real destination in mind other than getting drunk. They'd picked up some beers and Lee was pounding them despite the fact that she was at the wheel. As the piles of empties stacked up and it looked like they were running low on their supply, Lee pulled off to refill. When she came back out to the car with another case of beer under her arm, she asked Ty to take over driving. Ty was hardly in better shape than Lee, but agreed. They drove around a while longer, ending up on a rough, winding road. Just the perfect kind of road to drive when you are roaring drunk. Mm -hmm. Ty misjudged a curve and lost control, crashing through a fence and into a tree where the car finally came to rest. Both women were banged up and bleeding, but overall in better condition than the car itself.
1: And this was a borrowed car, right? Oh, yeah.
0: Okay. So Lee panicked, Mm -hmm. uh, telling Ty that they had to make a run for it. Now, Ty, you would think, given her previous knowledge to your earlier point, that she would be panicked about the same reason. But she thought maybe it was because they had been drinking. But Lee said, I'm going to tell you something. We can't let the cops know anything right now. I killed somebody. This is the car of a murdered guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Casual confession. Exactly. Now, before Ty could respond, they looked up to see Rhonda and Jim Bailey, who lived right near the tree they had crashed into. The couple just wanted to see if the two women were okay, but took notice of the pile of beer cans in the car. Mm -hmm. Lee pleaded with them not to call the cops and refused their offer for her to use their phone. Probably sensing that Lee wasn't entirely stable, they went back to their house and watched from a window. They were like, you do you,
1: we'll just call a tow truck. Basically, yeah. Yeah.
0: Lee then pulled the license plate off of the car and she and Ty got back inside. I'm not sure what the rationale there was, A, because there's a VIN on the car. (laughs) And like she then later pulled off the, like she pulled off the back one and then later pulled off the front one and just like tossed them aside. So not really thinking logically. Yeah, no, most criminals don't. (laughs) True. Now somehow Lee managed to get the car running again and pulled back onto the road. They made it to the main road, but the car had had enough, and they were forced to abandon it. So now they're covered in blood, carrying the cooler of beer between them. I mean, were they going to leave it in the car? Come on. Right. They were then spotted walking along the road by a local. He pulled over, intending to offer them a ride to home. Mm, Not to home. To town. (laughs) And then thought better of it once he saw them up close with all the blood. Watching him drive off and realizing it was because of how they looked, they cleaned off the blood and were able to hitchhike all the way back to their apartment.
1: That just made me think of the office episode where Dwight says that they won't wait on him to buy the wizard. And they said, well, he was very menacing. He was covered (laughs) in blood. And he's like, it was beet juice. But in this instance, it (laughs) It was was blood. blood, Yeah, it was blood. Definitely. That night,
0: officers from Marion County were assigned to investigate the car. When investigators looked up the VIN, because again, there are other ways to look it up, <laughs> it came back to Peter Sims, raising a serious flag since he had been missing for almost a month and presumed dead. They chatted with another neighbor, neighbor, Marvin Wood, who gave a description of Ty and Lee. And due to the tight-knit community in the small town, they were also able to talk to the man who had first pulled over to offer Ty and Lee a ride, as well as Rhonda and Jim, who had witnessed the accident. They all gave a similar description. Just a few days after the crash, a forensic artist put together a sketch of the two women, but it wasn't released quite yet. The investigators needed a bit more time to put their thoughts together.
1: And Peter was the one with the Bibles, right? Yes. Okay.
0: Yep. Although law enforcement was zeroing in on Lee, she was oblivious and felt no need to lay low. On Monday, July 30th, Sharon Burris was anxiously pacing. Her husband, Troy, still wasn't home. She watched as the clock struck eight. He should have been home a half hour ago. She tried to sit. The clock struck nine. He would never come home late without calling. Another hour passed, and then another, and she finally called his sister, Letha. Troy and Letha were extremely close, and she figured if there was anything going on, Letha would know. The siblings had always been inseparable. Letha calling him Buddy, just like his father used to,
1: because
0: okay. he was this slight, sweet man, just five foot six and one hundred and fifty-five pounds. Oh, everyone always loved talking to him, especially the girls who lo- loved looking into his bright blue eyes. But Letha hadn't heard from him either, and she and her husband Bob immediately drove over to Sharon's. Troy had recently gotten a new job as a delivery driver, but he was familiar with his routes. He really enjoyed driving, but not as much as he enjoyed being a grandfather and spending time with his family. Oh I wish you could see Marina's face. It's just like a ever growing pout it's and slowly it melting sadder, and sadder
1: melting into a sad emoji <laughs> <Yeah>, Yes.
0: <laughs> the only downside of his job was that it took him away from them for some stretches, but he would typically spend Tuesday and Wednesday nights at motels and the rest of the time at home. But he was always on time for his deliveries, so when he hadn't shown up several hours past his scheduled drop-off time, the grocery store owner, Mrs. Thompson, called Sharon, further worrying her. Mrs. Thompson also told her husband, who called the Marion County Sheriff's Office, to see if there had been any accidents or arrests involving the delivery truck, which was pretty smart. Mm -hmm. Nothing. The Thompsons were so fond of Troy that they went out that night to drive the route that Troy would have come from. It was like 1130 at night. I thought that was... Incredibly nice. Yeah. Letha and Bob were doing the same thing, just from the opposite direction, and they were the ones to find Troy's truck and were joined shortly by officers from Marion County who had also been searching. It was the same old story no clues in the truck, and worse, no Troy. They searched the nearby woods for him to no avail. The investigation into Troy's disappearance continued desperately for another four days until the news came. Troy's body had been found just off of another highway but by another couple who had been out looking for a place to sit down for a picnic.
1: Ooh, that's not what you want to find no, on your thinking, way to a picnic. Kind of kills the mood.
0: Yes, it does. Yeah. Troy was laying face down, killed by apparent bullet wounds. Additional personal items were scattered about carelessly. He was still wearing his wedding ring, and as it had only been a couple of days, he was easily identifiable. And it helped that his work shirt, or the work shirt that he was wearing, had his name embroidered on it. Oh, Troy, made me super sad. Troy, Sharon's nightmare repeated itself for Shirley Humphreys just a couple of months later.
1: She was fucking busy, huh? This is all—I mean, like within days, and then and then months. So much self-defense. That's exactly the point. Like, what are you talking about So, now? so many Once, sketchy maybe, situations.
0: And remember that because it will actually become important when we talk about the trial, because if you only look at one murder, right. maybe you don't feel that way. So we'll talk about that.
1: Yeah. And typically women get deference against exactly. men when it Because it does to- happen. Right. So, yeah, we'll remember
0: that. We'll talk about that. It was a Tuesday night in September when Shirley's husband, Dick, didn't arrive home at his usual time. And by usual time, I mean every single night he came home at exactly 610. She thought maybe his car had had trouble, but as the hours passed, she became more and more worried. If he'd made other plans, he would have called. They had just celebrated their 35th wedding anniversary the night before, Oh. and they were connected, so she felt it. Something was wrong. Dick himself was an investigator, though it was his last day in that office. He was taking an easier, closer role the next week. The semi-retirement would be a blessing for the 56-year-old. He and Shirley were still full of life and were looking forward to the extra time together and with their family.
1: You're just trying to break me.
0: I am, yeah. But Lee put an end to that with the curl of her finger on the trigger. His body was found the next day, just off the highway, by a couple of teenagers out on their bikes. He was clothed, wearing brown pants and a short-sleeved shirt that used to be white, but was now dark red with blood. He still had his socks and shoes on, as well as his watch and wedding ring, but his pockets had been turned inside out. The boys immediately fled and notified the police. It was 2.30 in the morning when Shirley opened her door to a sight recognizable by any serviceman's wife. An officer from Marion County was standing on her porch with the crushing news. The medical examiner noted seven bullet wounds on Dick's body, six of which were in his side, and the one that killed him was to the back of his head. Once again, execution style, exactly not self-defense. This time Lee waited two more months before she struck again. Walter Antonio's body was found on November 19th naked, except for his socks. He had been shot four times in the back. He had been dead less than 24 hours. So investigators with the Dixie County Sheriff's office were able to identify him by fingerprints and notify his fiance. He was scheduled to get married.
1: Did they find all of the bodies except Peter's? Yes. Okay.
0: Wow, good memory. Thank you. Very impressive. Thank you. I wrote how many pages on this, and I finally got that. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, so Walter's car was just recovered a few days later. It was time. There had been enough deaths. Investigators decided to release the sketch. Leads poured in, including one from Kathy Beesman, who had hosted Ty and Lee at the Pierre Motel, mm. Paul, the man who attempted to write a book about Lee. It didn't take long for a few names to bubble to the surface, but Ties was actually the most consistent, followed by Cammie Green. Oh. Yep. Lee's real name was veiled thanks to her prolific use of aliases.
1: Whenever we talk about sketches, I always think about, mm. I think it was your comment in the Delphi murders, mm. that sketches are for people who know the person in the sketch, Correct. Not, not for everybody else. Yep, because
0: I think as someone who has never known someone in a sketch like that, thankfully, I always thought that it was... You look at the sketch and then you go see if you see anybody that looks like them. But right. it's really intended for the people that already know them. That's a great right. point.
1: It's like, oh, hey, that kind of looks like Ed. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe I should let them know.
0: <laughs> so Ty was appalled. So she definitely recognized herself um, and just <laughs> saw her name. She's like, damn it. <laughs> yep. And she was appalled to see her name in the papers in connection with all these murders. She hadn't done anything. Okay, fuck her, though. She
1: knew she was uh-huh. in dead
0: guys' cars. Like, you can't uh uh-huh. you can't s- have it both ways. No, but she tried because instead of, like, going to the police or anything, she decided it was just time to distance herself from Lee.
1: <laughs> Effective, I'm yeah, sure.
0: Exactly. I mean, the two had been tr- having some trouble lately anyway, so by Christmas 1990, Ty was back in Ohio celebrating the holiday with her family. Again, as if nothing happened.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As for Lee, it seemed like she might be skating under the radar, at least to her. But remember in the last episode how the fact that she used the same alias multiple times screwed her? Right. That is what happened here. So knowing that the killer had taken all sorts of items from her victims in addition to cash, investigators thought to search local pawn shops. If the items had been pawned, they'd be able to see who pawned them as the stores were required to take a copy of their license and a fingerprint.
1: Whoa.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: Is that a thing?
0: In this um county in or like area in florida it is Mm whoa that is
1: brilliant yep
0: so remember also in part one i told you that richard mallory's ex-girlfriend jackie actually provided some of the best evidence to find his killer because she had been able to tell investigators exactly what richard had had in his car at the time he disappeared right sure enough detectives tracked down his camera and radar detector who had pawned it none other than cammy green So now they had her fingerprint, but they couldn't match it to those found at the crime scenes because then there were no fingerprints ever found at the crime scenes. Lee had always wiped them clean. There was even a case where there was like duct tape or something. And the investigators commented like, how could you possibly have handled all of this and not left a a fingerprint? But she didn't. Evil bitch. Exactly. Exactly. Now, it's really incredible how law enforcement was able to eventually make the connection. They compared literally thousands of fingerprints on file to Cammie Green's and eventually matched to a Lori Grody, who had previously been arrested back in 1986 in a stolen vehicle with a loaded twenty two, which I believe I told you in part one as well. So
1: many alias.
0: Yep, but not enough. She needed some more. Yeah. If she had just had a few more, she would have been fine. Mm-hmm. So knowing instinctively that they were on the right path, they were eventually able to surface Lee's names and name, although she did have several, but <laughs> Lee's name and Prince, which of course matched. So obviously investigators wanted to be sure they could successfully bring Lee in, but they were, I almost said interestingly, but this one is, <laughs> um, they were trying to avoid actually putting her under arrest yet because apparently at the time, the Supreme Court had not yet made a decision as to whether someone in jail for one crime could be questioned for another. So they didn't want to risk limiting their ability to question her on the murders for which they had less evidence. Okay. Complicated. Right. Instead, they put her under surveillance on Tuesday, January 8th, 1991. Two undercover officers were assigned to the task, not a task that I would want to be doing. No, just go
1: pick her up hitchhiking
0: exactly yeah Yeah. well they they really didn't want to do that though because the the track record is not great for them so instead they joined her at a dive bar called the last resort which i just think is a perfect irony to add to the collection for her
1: okay we should add that to our career path as well to open up a bar called the last resort because i really like it
0: yeah i don't think the clientele that we want though is We'll make it classy. I, okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll open a dive bar called the last resort, but it's
1: classy. <laughs> Perfect. We'll we'll drink the beer with our pinkies out. <laughs> Perfect.
0: <laughs> they were working on befriending her when two uniformed officers came in and approached Lee. This was not part of the plan. It turned out that the officers were working on an an anonymous tip. And one of the one of the undercovers managed to sneak outside and by the grace of God remembered the number for the direct line to the local police department. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So cause he like couldn't he couldn't tell the people that were managing the undercover. So he then when he called in, identified himself and they were able to call off the officers because it could have thrown the whole thing out.
1: Wow. Uh-huh.
0: Just crazy. Now, Lee and the undercovers went back to talking. By the end of the night, Lee was sloshed, as usual, and asked them for a ride home. But as we mentioned earlier, they declined, they knowing... Like, no thank you. Exactly. They knew what she was capable of once she was in a car with men, but they did tail her. She slept outside that night, another little piece of irony, as uh, she had nowhere to go. So oh. um, that was her last real taste of freedom. And then joined them back at the bar the next evening. In their chats, the officers discovered that a pig roast was planned for that night, which typically attracted hundreds and hundreds more people than usual. I can totally understand. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement was worried that this would make surveillance nearly impossible and also introduced more risk that Lee would strike again.
1: So many choices.
0: Yep. So they decided that the pros outweighed the cons and they put Lee under arrest. Meanwhile, another task force was assigned to Ty up in Ohio. Although detectives were pretty sure that Lee was the mastermind, they still wanted to pick up Ty since she was involved, just f- for failing to blow the whistle on Lee at the very least. Right. So they picked Ty up at work and placed her in protective custody, and she went willingly enough. She declined a lawyer, saying it would complicate things. Mm. Yep. She willingly participated in an interview with detectives where they surmised that she likely hadn't been involved with any of the murders, but she was certainly aware of at least three.
1: I don't care how innocent you are. You always get a lawyer Uh and you shut up.
0: It surprisingly didn't seem to screw her in this, which is amazing. I think it was so so outshined by Lee's screw up.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it depends on the circumstances, but if they wanted to nail... They Mm -hmm. could have. Absolutely. But I guess instead
0: of charging her for that, they used it as leverage to help get her or to get her to help elicit a confession from Lee. Ty was agreeable. She actually seemed quite relieved to have it all out in the open. Ty was flown down to Florida and set up in a motel with a a phone hooked up to recording equipment. Through a series of phone calls, she was able to trick Lee into agreeing to confess in order to prove that Ty had nothing to do with the murders. Because Lee was still not over Ty. Ty had moved on when she realized finally that Lee was bad news, but Lee was still very much in love with her. And so Ty really played into that and, and Lee agreed to confess.
1: Is it really tricking her though? Because she's just like, can you please confess or I'm going to go to jail and that's fucked up. True. I couldn't
0: decide. I actually sat for a while on that verb. I couldn't decide if it was conned or convinced or whatever. You're right. I
1: think convinced. Yeah.
0: yeah. So sure enough, Lee sat down with detectives, knowing that the process had to be squeaky clean to ensure this confession was heard in court. They had the tape running while Lee entered the room, introducing themselves and then being sure to notify her that she was being recorded. As the interview began, she asked for a lawyer, but then kept talking. And the detectives, again, they're worried about ensuring this could be used in court. They frequently interjected to stop her from incriminating herself before the public defender could arrive. It didn't matter, though. When the lawyer did arrive and tried to advise her to stay quiet, she just ignored him. Okay. Over the course of three hours, Lee implicated herself in seven homicides. Wow. Effective. Yeah. Efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile, the evidence was piling up. When Lee had been taken into custody, they found a key to a storage unit which contained a treasure trove of items belonging to the deceased. Ty had also told police that Lee had ditched her gun in a nearby bay. So on January 17th, a dive team recovered the 22 caliber revolver. Combined with Lee's lengthy confession, she was officially indicted for first-degree murder, armed robbery with a firearm or deadly weapon, and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, all in relation to Richard Mallory's death. At the time of her arrest, Lee was just shy of her 35th birthday but that didn't stop a woman named Arlene Prowl from adopting her. What? <laughs> yep. Arlene was just 10 years Lee's senior and she saw Lee in the paper and God told her to help. <laughs> and now it could have been divine
1: intervention. Yeah, I'm just I'm laughing at mm-hmm. I'm laughing at a 45-year-old adopting a 35-year-old uh-huh. serial killer
0: exactly what happened. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, it, it could have been that divine intervention or the allure of fame and money, which, um, you know, was maybe something Arlene had chased in the past. Okay. One of the few details I'm choosing not to dive into here is the drama surrounding the trial related to book and movie deals. At one time or another, Lee, Arlene, and even the detectives were all accused of trying to make money off of this sensational story regardless arlene did appear to support lee throughout it all so i just wanted to add it because i just thought it was crazy interesting i don't know that is
1: Mm -hmm. i didn't know that you didn't know (laughs) wow we got all the way to almost the end (laughs) i didn't know about her being adopted and i didn't know about the fire everything else i already knew i knew
0: all of it (laughs) Um, that's good (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Speechless. I'm speechless. My favorite podcast situation. Now, as all of the ducks were waddling into a row leading up to the start of Lee's trial, I thought you'd like that sentence. I did like that sentence. One of the biggest debates was whether or not her confession would actually make it into the court. The defense's argument was that it might jeopardize Lee's right to a fair trial. And obviously the prosecution wanted to have the court hear Lee describe the murders in her own words. Ultimately, the judge determined that not only would it be allowed in court, but it would be released to the public. Okay. So that those are out there. I listened to some of it on, oh, wow. um, on YouTube. Yeah. She is a rambling, like almost incoherent. It's, it's a, quite a... I didn't listen to all three hours. <laughs> I'm not even sure all three hours are out there, but...
1: Did they give her a beer while she was, while she was confessing? I wonder if that would have affected... Like, can you be inebriated during a confession?
0: No. So they probably didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Just a guess.
1: I mean, you can, but I'm thinking that that would be. Well, you can have a cigarette, right? Oh like, yeah. So, like, because it depends on the police station. But yeah, yeah I'm thinking that it's Florida. So, I thi- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think they're like, here's a pack of Marlboro Ritz. <laughs> That's not Florida, <laughs> no. but <laughs> at least it wasn't Australian, yes, which right. sounds like a drunk Irishman. So. You know, moving on. <laughs> we digress. We digress. The
0: alternate name for our for our podcast. <laughs> anyway, likely seeing the writing on the wall, Lee's lawyers attempted a plea deal in exchange for a life sentence as opposed to the death penalty. All but one of the attorneys of the counties involved agreed. One of them held out because he felt that Chuck Karskadden had been shot, having been shot nine times, represented overkill and therefore warranted a death sentence. Wow. Can't say I disagree. No. Um. And so, on Monday, January 13th, 1992, Lee's trial for the murder of Richard Mallory began. Although the judge had allowed the inclusion of Lee's confession tape as evidence, the prosecution was battling another critical decision. This is what I had mentioned earlier. What was the judge's ruling on something called the Williams Rule, or the similar fact rule? This decision would determine to what extent the prosecution could mention the other murders. Obviously, this is a huge point. It would help convince the jury one way or another if Lee's actions could have truly been in self-defense. Because if you just hear Richard Mallory's murder, he didn't have a stellar background. It's possible he was truly picking her up for sex. It's possible he could have attacked her. So self-defense was plausible.
1: Yeah, they definitely should be allowed to admit all of those other crimes because it shows... Her general mode of operating, mm-hmm. her modus operandi, if you her, will. Her MO. Her MO. But that was the
0: prosecution's main strategy to prove that Lee had, in fact, not acted in self-defense, as was evidenced by the number and locations of the bullet wounds, the high number of murders in a short period of time, and the fact that she had not mentioned anything about being attacked or raped in her confession tape or her recorded conversations with Ty. Now the defense was mainly trying to prove that Lee had acted in self-defense. They also wanted to cause reasonable doubt that Lee had acted alone. They wanted the jury to think that maybe it was possible that Ty had been involved.
1: That's messed up. Mm -hmm.
0: The confession tape would help them on the first point. Lee definitely mentioned that she was defending herself plenty of times although notably not in response to any actions of the victim, just her own thoughts. Mm-hmm. But the prosecution decided to show a truncated version, limiting Lee's commentary to just that relating to Richard Mallory's death. The defense couldn't really argue with this, otherwise they'd be throwing out their argument against the Williams rule. In other words, if they'd argued to have the full tape included, they were purposely including information about other murders instead. And it would turn out to be in the defense's best interest to be able to appeal that rule since the judge made his decision that similar fact evidence could be included in the trial.
1: Thank you. Huge win for the prosecution. Basically the entire win, actually. Right, because I guess, I don't remember how many gunshot wounds he had, but if you were looking at one and you didn't know that there mm-hmm. were that she had all these other bodies. Exactly. You think okay, maybe. Possible. Maybe exactly. because you don't know how somebody like even the one that's overkill you don't know how you would react in that situation. Right. Maybe you black out and pull the trigger and, until it stops firing. Exactly. And that's
0: why that the uh, prosecution's comment, That's like you don't need to have self-defense seven times in two years. Right. That's just a lot, common no. fact will, or common sense will tell you that's not going to be fact. You would be so unlucky. <laughs> exactly. So unlucky. Exa- now, arguably, she was doing a high-risk activity in all of her hitchhiking and and selling her body, but it's not... It, it just didn't – the defense had a pretty impossible task at so hand. So unlucky. Yeah. yeah. So the evi- – and not to mention there was some evidence, like actual evidence against her, the witness testimony. So they brought in all those people I talked about in this case. They brought in everybody. And Lee herself throughout the trial would occasionally just say that she was guilty. Oh. So – yep. So once both sides had rested, the jury only took 91 minutes to deliberate. That's a long time. Yeah. Guilty on all counts. <laughs> Now, although this decision was for the Richard Mallory homicide, the families of all the victims were present. They were relieved, sad, and unsurprised. In contrast to Lee, who immediately shouted at the jury, sons of bitches, I hope you get raped.
1: What? Yep. Yep. In what context, though, was she announcing that she was guilty during the trial? I think in
0: conversations, I don't know if she was talking to the media, but just in conversations that the book had had mentioned she was just saying yeah like i i might have done it i might have killed them they didn't really do anything to me just acknowledging oh. mhm i'm sure her lawyers loved that oh she went through a handful of
1: lawyers cuz i think she kept firing them and that's the hallmark of a good client <laughs> right is having a, a litany of lawyers exactly that have been hired by them exactly
0: so that was her experience at the trial. Next up was her sentencing. Since the jury had found her guilty of first-degree murder, the minimum sentence would be 25 years of a life sentence, and the sentencing trial would determine if she would be given death. Unlike the trial for the murder charges, the jury only needed a majority, majority instead of the unanimous decision. The prosecution had to show that the murder was aggravated, most of which was already proven in the initial trial and would be reiterated in the sentencing trial. One additional witness for the state was noteworthy. Lee's older brother, Barry, arrived to testify against her.
1: Oh, Barry.
0: Yeah. Her lawyer commented that in his lengthy career, he'd never seen a family member of the defendant
1: testify in
0: favor of a death sentence.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Was he even around her that much? No, enough to do that? It,
0: I actually, and, and the book went into, of course, great detail on this, but it was a little strange because he had left when she was still pretty young, um, but I guess he was able to articulate enough that it was worth him going on the stand.
1: Weren't there implications that he had sexually assaulted her?
0: Not him. No. Oh, His, okay. The grandfather and, um, yeah. not No, you're thinking maybe of Keith, her actual sibling. Barry is mm. the technically her uncle.
1: Yep. 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 That's where the confusion was coming in. That's fair.
0: There's a lot. There's
1: been quite a bit of information.
0: So was that another piece that you didn't
1: know? I didn't know that. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, as for the jury, they only needed 108 minutes to reach their verdict. Although they needed just seven of the 12 members in favor, their decision was unanimous to sentence Lee to death. Wow. The judge confirmed this decision and Lee was sent to death row. As for the murders of David Spears, Troy Burris, and Dick Humphreys, Lee pled no contest, and a new panel of peers were assigned to determine her sentence. After four hours of deliberation, they came back in favor of the death penalty with a vote of 10 to 2. The judge again confirmed their decision, bringing Lee's count to four death penalties. Wow. Lee pled guilty to Chuck Karskadin's homicide and received a death sentence for his murder, as well as that of Walter Antonio. She would not be charged with Peter Sims murder as they had not found his body.
1: No body, no crime. <laughs> eh, eh, eh. No body, no crime. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: But it wouldn't have mattered in a practical sense since she had a whopping six death sentences to look forward to. But I, I say practical sense because, of course, for Peter's family, they would not have closure or justice. Right.
1: Why didn't they find his body?
0: I don't know because she was not known for destroying the bodies. The bodies were not like in a bunch of different States or anything. The only thing I can think of is something ate him. Well, that is it the wild boars?
1: Oh my God. The wild boars. It's Florida though. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure gators can do terrible things to a human body. Well, And
0: I'm actually not sure. I'd have to look back at the, at the details. Um, that might be my word is details. You have interesting. (laughs) I have details. But he might have been further north, so the only thing I can think of is maybe it was further outside of her regular area than anyone else, and that's why. But you would think someone would find Eventually. his body. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know.
1: I think it, I think it was Gators or Pumbaa. Yeah, it might have been Pumbaa. <laughs> oh, poor Peter.
0: Lee's lawyers attempted a number of appeals, which by 1994 were all denied. In the years following, Lee began expressing her desire to die. This culminated in a landfall 2001 decision to end all of her appeals and move to execution. To really hit this point home, Lee made several statements retracting her claim of self-defense and saying, quote, I want to tell the world that I killed these men. I robbed them and I killed them as cold as ice and I'd do it again too. I'd kill another person because I've hated humans for a long time. And later, I am a serial killer. I killed them in cold blood, real nasty. Right after they picked me up and we parked in the woods, I whipped out my gun and killed them. It's really aggressive. Yeah. Eileen Carol Warnos was executed by lethal injection on October 9th, 2002. Her last words were
1: She's really good with words. Oh boy.
0: I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all. (laughs) I'll be back. I'll be back. (laughs) And that, my friends, is the story of Eileen Carroll Warnos.
1: Okay, for your last words, you're just gonna pick a random collection of words to say. You're like sounds he- like something you would do. Hedgehogs, <laughs> porcupines, rose, peace out. <laughs> those are my Girl final. Scout. <laughs> those are my final words. Yeah it, it
0: I think. It's it's obvious to say she had something going on in her head, um, and as you can imagine, many studies have been done on her on her psychology and behavior. And in one study from two thousand five, it was determined this will also not be shocking that she evidenced a psychopathic personality
1: mm-hmm. and
0: met criteria for antisocial personality disorder and borderline personality disorder. You
1: don't say. Yeah, shocking. I know. Wow. I know. The final words are my favorite.
0: They are. I had to include them. They're they're stellar. Wow. So, I mean, my thoughts overall, like clearly, as I said, something wrong with her head. I, I think a couple of things, it's possible that maybe Richard had done something, her first murder had, maybe something had provoked her to truly defend herself. I say maybe because I've, I was really stuck on, you remember when you asked, I think, I think, um, they were, Ty and Lee were moving out of Cammies maybe. And I said, they borrowed a car and you said, mm-hmm. oh, whose car? And I said, we don't know. Right. That was before, that was three years before Richard Richard's murder.
1: Oh, and I meant to ask you, so you said she confessed to seven. Were those the seven that we discussed? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, I mean, she didn't confess to any more. No. And it, it's just, but it's strange that were also in the book. I
0: really, if you are up for 600 pages, they are- really well written like it's not dry it's incredibly compelling to read the whole book um but she did say something about she was talking about things that she had and owned and she implied that she had things of other people's this is all before richards
1: oh but didn't she get didn't she get snagged for larceny or burglary true. earlier oh on? yeah she did it so yeah. maybe she yeah. okay maybe she escalated the behavior That's just true. from you know, Grand Theft Auto to murder.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think definitely every other murder we discussed was tragic, unnecessary, not to say Richard's wasn't, but I think it. um, those really broke my heart. Every single one of them had families. Every single one of them were leaving people, which was in direct contrast to something she said that she thought because they were, quote, old, which, by the way, they were like 55 and not, they weren't but that they didn't have any families. So I think she, again, just had a very twisted view of the world um, that unfortunately caused people to lose their lives.
1: I have a few thoughts. One is I feel so bad for Peter's family that yes. all the other bodies were found except his. Though I'm, I'm sure they know what happened to a certain extent, but yeah. you just don't have that. That It's like a missing piece exactly. to like bury your loved one. Yep. Um, I also am heartbroken over the randomness of it. You have people that are being, trying to be benevolent and kind, Uh except for, I'm not saying Richard wasn't benevolent and kind. I'm just saying there was an ulterior motive there, but, um, like you're trying to help someone out. And I think we've had this discussion before, like I would not stop for somebody. And this goes with like the bystander effect because of situations like this, like yep. you do something nice and you end up getting murdered.
0: Well, and I think that it's even more compelling that they were all men because not to say that women can't protect themselves, but I think a man is much more likely to see a woman on the side of the highway and think, Oh, I can pick her up. I'll be okay. Versus one of us to pick up a man. I would right. never, cause I'm like, I can't defend myself. Right. So I think that's why it's so much more shocking that she was able to commit this many murders. Um, just, and, and why there aren't many female serial killers. And I did think that she was the first in history... Because it's often written that she is, but my research tells me that the first ever was actually Lavinia Fisher back in the early 1800s, which sounds right up my alley for <laughs> something to do a case on, so that may be a future case.
1: We need to know the history of electricity in that case <laughs> yes, as well definitely. and how it contributed to her serial killer I ways. I should
0: not find more books because that's how two-parters <laughs> happen. <laughs> anyway, if you're enjoying Grimm... Make sure you're getting the most in between episodes. You can find us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast and on Facebook. Just search Grim A True Crime Podcast. Or even better, you can subscribe to our Patreon by searching Grim A True Crime Podcast on the Patreon app or website. You can send us an email at, grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. and that's also where you can send us case suggestions or really anything else you like. Wherever you do listen, please rate us, or even better, leave a written review. Thanks for being here, and remember, listen, learn, and stay alive until next time, because the future is grim.